quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, So There I Was. This is episode number 94, Pigs with Fins. Yeah. <laughs> fins on pigs, baby. Fins on, on pigs. I'm sorry. Uh, fins on that, pigs. That's okay. It's pigs and fins and slinging, slinging what we thought they were slinging more livestock, but it was. I know. I Similar. thought we were going to have that. We're going to have another livestock story. Yeah. We had several in a row there. We're killing livestock. I thought this might be another one. Yeah. No. Sort of not. What a great, another great episode. Absolutely. Hey, sponsor this week is Factor. Go to factormeals.com slash so there I was 50 for 50% off your order. We'll talk more about that during the show. But speaking of the show, we need some ratings. Yeah, so rate us. Rate us at so there I was dot us slash rate. And apparently we found out if you've rated us once. That's it. You can't rate us again. No. Is that right? Unless you want to raise your rating, five and a half stars and six. Don't yeah. go in and change your rating to four so you can submit another rating. Don't do it. <laughs> now we, we had a couple listeners give us a other than stellar rating, and so we've taken your feedback. So come back and re-rate us. Give yeah, us a five-star this time. There you go. That'll work. <laughs> and we've had some more people throw money at us. Thank you. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's see. Sal Marinello, Tanker Aircraft Commander Times 3. Thank you, Sal. Rick Mosley, Tanker Aircraft Commander Times 2. Nice. Uh, We have a new section lead, Jeremy Strack. Thank you, Jeremy. We've got Jim McHale, Call Sign Navy. Patreon pilot. Thank you. That's from, is that from the Mac Geek Gab? Yeah, that's how he first heard of us. Yeah. Hey, that's pretty awesome. We got Aircraft, Air, Air Cav Chris, Tanker Aircraft Commander. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. And uh, we got Philip Flipper Comer. Thank you, Philip. And uh, Julius Caesar Taylor. Thank you, my friend. For Indeed. Uh, thank, all, thank all of you for your generous donations. It's very humbling, and we appreciate it. And thank all of you indeed. I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to beg your indulgence, folks, and I'm going to go through all the people who support us and who have so done. The direct donation folks, we've got, of course, Gallo. Joe Anderson has sent us $100. Jeff Cross sent us $100. Michelle Langseth sent us $50. David Olson sent us $50. Steve Bates is regularly sending us $5 on our website, direct donation. It's so there it was, .us slash donate. And then uh, Flipper. Phil Comer, you just mentioned him. He sent us $25. And Julius, call sign Caesar, sent us $15. And uh, I believe that's a regular pledge. So thank you, sir. That's awesome. Yeah. We have pilots on so there I was dot us slash Patreon. They're sending us $5 a month. So thank you to Ray Glanville. Statman, we have no idea who you are, Statman, except Statman. <laughs> he might uh, want it that way. Yeah. He probably know. does. Don't want to admit that he, he listens to us. <laughs> it's like kissing your sister. It feels good, but you don't want to know you're doing it. <laughs> All right. Peter Simon, Patrick Miller, Steve Coach Dito, Peter Duncan. Don't it. Eric Fletcher. <laughs> that was too easy. Yeah, right. Chuck Thompson, Scott Southard, Justin Lundberg-Neff, Vapor, Scott Walsh, Jonathan Knuckles, Dragger, Chris Blaine, John B. Hall, Sticks, Wayne Batzer, 
<clears throat> excuse me, Scott Christensen, Cal Stewart, Mike Price, Peter Robinson, Chase Cole, Earl McCoy. Bago. Yeah, Bago, indeed. And A.E. Schmidt, Hawktart are all people who have sent us $5 per, the, per month per the uh, Patreon set website. We have some section leads out there. Stephen Plunk, Patrick McLeight, Strecken. We met up with him last month. That was fun. Roger Volstorff. I'm sorry. Let me let me back up. That those those Stephen Blanc and Patrick McLeight are section leads, and our division leads who send fifteen dollars a month to us are Strecken, Roger Volstorff, Marcus Ponte, William Wilson, Double L, Erkev Chris. Yeah, he became a tanker aircraft commander. Before that, he had sent us a fifty dollar direct donation. So thank you, Erkev Chris. Yeah. Aircraft kiss is rocking out of the park. And these are our tanker aircraft commanders. We've got Rick Mosley, Cale Heckerson, Keith Gallagher, Yogi, Ben Hancock, Lawman, and Sal Marinello, who is now times three. Uh, Lawman was times two, and, and Chucker is just Chucker category. Uh, well, he, Chucker's in his own category, man. Yeah, he's absolutely a category by himself. Listen, every one of you people have separated your hard-earned money from your wallet and and send it to us. Speechless. I am humbled. So thank you. You, you make this show possible. We, we really appreciate it. Ditto. If you want to reach out to us, you could do that. How would you get a hold of us, Fig? Well, you could uh, send an email to fig or repeat or sticks at so there I was dot us. And if you really need a question answered... Our technical guy, our guy with the big brain, that'd be sticks. Yeah, especially helicopter questions. <laughs> yeah, anything to do with the whirling shit cans of death, please <laughs> forward all, all those to sticks. Right. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry for yeah. all you helicopter guys out there. I, yeah, I'm, uh, we love you they guys. They scare the hell out of me. Yeah, yeah. I do love you. I, I'm, I don't know how you do it or how you did it or how you yeah. continue to do it. Exactly. So... Thanks to Chase Cole. Bago! Running our Facebook Bag-o. group. Big help. Thanks to Styx, who does a lot of work behind the scenes, helping secure guests, some production, does a lot of our artwork. Great help. Great, great support to the show. Thank you, sir. Critical team member. Critical team member. Bag-o. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Sometime co-horsed. Thanks to Brad Silcott at BDSAviationPhotography.com. Go see some amazing aviation shots there. Right, and then of course the uh, the dos gringos who let us <laughs> degrade their music <laughs> by putting it associating it with our show every week. Oh my well, gosh! Hopefully, know. and you know what's yeah. funny is I I was uh, li- I listened to a dos gringo song today when I was driving and I just I laughed my ass off. Right, it's not one I hear all the time, so I kind of forgot about it, and I listened to the words, and oh my gosh, those guys are so creative. It's it's yeah. amazing. So. There's not a bad song on any of those albums. No. They're all really great. There's not. There's not indeed. Hey, you know, I think who what we've forgotten to talk about here, well, we haven't forgotten, but we're getting to it now. Our guest this week, Ice. Ice. Iceman. Holy cow. Yeah. He has some great stories. He had an incredible flying career in the Navy, flying the, well, well let's be honest, it was a whirling... Shit can of death. Burning dervish of shit can of death. <laughs> SH-60s. And then, and then yes. there's the UH-1 Huey, also known yeah. as Iroquois, but not by many folks. But he did that down well south of the equator, down at the South Pole. 
down in Antarctica. Uh, very unique. Very unique. Oh. Uh, and, and, you know, you, that sets up a, a whole line of logistics and, and issues that you don't even think about on a normal day. Never. Never think about that stuff. Occasionally, you know, if you go into Minneapolis on a, on a cold January day when it's 40, 45 below zero, then you go, okay, you're close to that. But you aren't dealing with that day in and day out that they're dealing with down in Antarctica. Things like uh, they were coming into a site and crew chief thought they were on fire. They weren't on fire. It wasn't smoke. They were contrailing. It was so cold. <laughs> they were about to yeah. land and they're contrailing. Contrailing. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> think about that that's you know normally you're not contrailing until you're up in the 30s yeah you know, 30,000s yeah oh yeah no never one day did I ever think that was possible and then a great story about some blubber that has been preserved there for I don't know 100, <laughs> 100 years or more <laughs> yeah yeah don't ruin it because that's really good yeah yeah, I think we get out of the way and listen well, to Ice yeah. tell these amazing stories. I, flying down in Antarctica. Oh, terrifying. I, and I think he volunteered <laughs> for that shit. He did. Somehow. I, yeah. <laughs> tell us all about it, Ice. story about crossing the pond at night in the world's smallest cockpit on the tanker through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun. So there I was, supporting the National Science Foundation's Operation Deep Freeze in Antarctica. We had landed our Huey near the crater of Mount Erebus, one of the continent's two active volcanoes. Due to being in about 12,000 feet altitude, we were on oxygen, fairly rare for a helicopter crew. The outside temperature was typical, about zero degrees, a bit colder. We had picked our passengers up and their gear as I started to pull collective. It was obviously we were near max gross weight, and the heavy HH1 November blades were trying to get as much lift as they thin air allowed as we hovered to begin our transition of forward flight, the nose started to yaw left toward the mountain. We had lost tail rotor effectiveness. Ooh. What? And that's how all terrifying aviation stories begin. <laughs> Holy. No. Buckets. Yeah, all right. No. Who's this? Introduce no. yourself. Oh, what? Hey. Sticks. Hey. Oh, this is Sticks. <laughs> Sorry. Oh boy! Oh <laughs> boy! Sticks are coming to you from. It's New okay. Hampshire. I'm an amateur. Yeah. This is a, okay. Yeah. So this is Sticks. We're coming to you live from New Hampshire, and we have a outstanding guest with us today. We'll get to um, him. Let's get the cohorts in. Boy, so, oh boy! You lay it all out <laughs> for him, and he shifted gears and gears. This is third gear. <laughs> yeah. God. It's okay. Bless That's, That's all right. Guys, Jump in there, third gear. Hey, this is Fig, and, and uh, I am in Kearney, Missouri today, which we are one week away, by the way, from the Chiefs clinching their... Clinching something? Clinching their... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, where are you, my co-host, uh, Repeat? I'm in New Hampshire for another couple of days before I Woo! blast off around the world westbound to unwind what I did last month. 
Greetings, everybody. It's so good to be back with you, and we are honored to bring in with us today a rotorhead, call sign Iceman, who <laughs> has got quite a uh, quite a resume to include. Go all the way back to True Lies episode. Call sign Bugs was on that one. Bugs and I and Big That's... flew Harriers together back in the yes, day, and yes. and Iceman and Bugs went to the FBI Academy together, amongst other things. So. But uh, indeed, welcome, Iceman. We're super thrilled to have you with us. It doesn't sound like you're going to be able to tell very many good stories, so we may have to coach you along. I, I get that. No, that was an excellent opening. Thank you very much. Let's go back to the beginning. You were you were born and decided you wanted to fly airplanes. How'd that happen? Well, <laughs> yeah, this might upset many of your listeners or previous guests, but I never, never really thought I would be flying aircraft it wasn't something that oh, crossed my okay. mind you know i was the youngest of five kids my dad was a navy cb in world war ii joined at age 17 served in the south pacific aviation really wasn't in my family wasn't in my history but i decided to take a ROTC scholarship and aviation looked like my best option at the time and i was fortunate enough to get selected we've well, had a couple of those right Phil? yeah yeah that's not that's not an uncommon uh, yeah. story actually there's oh. there's several that we've talked to that yeah. i went and eh. took a test with my roommate no he didn't get to fly i did <laughs> yeah that <Yeah>. was father <laughs> yeah ended up having like six thousand hours in the f-15 uh, you know yeah. but he had no desire to fly when he was yeah. a kid some of it's all some of us it's all we ever wanted to do from the time we were a little kid or a teenager and and then other guys just go yeah i guess i'll do that you know what the hell but yeah. uh but you did it very so cool you, I heard you say ROTC scholarship. Where what, where'd you go to school, sir? So it was the typical, you know, 17-year-old decisions. I, my dad took me to ROTC night. Uh, only one of my other brothers went to college. And the Army, they wanted you to they wanted you to pee three days a week in the morning. I'm like, yeah, I like working out, but my own time. So I'm not going with that Army stuff. And the Air Force, they gave out their scholarships by major all being engineering, like, well, oh, that doesn't interest me at all. I want to, I want to be a forester. So I'll go in the Navy. So that's how I made that decision. Got into Penn State forestry. And the Navy's like, dude, psst, by the way, there's no trees in the ocean. We're not paying for that. So I ended up going to uh, Cornell University because that was fairly close to home, about an okay. hour 20 away. And I studied environmental sciences, natural resources. So not an engineer. But my college roommates were engineers, so I got to feel some of the pain. Okay. All right. Or, or witness it firsthand. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and one of those roommates became an F-14 pilot, and he was the kind that knee-high to a grasshopper, you know, had his pilot's license before his driving, driver's license. And it was a lot of fun to be with during flight school when I sucked and he didn't. But so, so be it. <laughs> It's always good to have someone that understands, though. Hey, explain that to me. Exactly. <laughs> How's that whole seatbelt sure thing work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. All right, so got to flight school. Assume uh, Pensacola. Did you go through Milton, or did you go down to Corpus for primary? I did. I went through Milton. So it was AI was November 88, and then ground school January 89, VT2, and then HT18. Stayed right there at Milton for my helicopter oh, yeah. training. You know, the, and of course we flew with the Coasties. So the jokes back yep. then, because they were with the Department of 
transportation Trans- back then was what yep, you guys yep, do. Yep. Right. What do you guys do for a short tour? Take tolls at the bridges? Yeah. Yeah, like, something well, like that. A, yeah, you can't be a coasty pilot. You're too short. What do you yeah. mean by that? Well, yeah, when, you well ground, when you ground the ship, you can't walk to shore, can you? Yeah, well, let's let's go with the real joke. How many coasties does it take to have a burial at sea? The answer is six: one to throw the body over the side, and five to stomp the guy in the mud. <laughs> so, but I'm an HT. I'm, an, I'm a product of HD eighteen as well. Went All to right. VT uh, VT three though. So nice. yeah, so flight school was hard for me. It was really hard. My on wing was a Marine screamer. So I got the knee board in the back of the helmet more than once. Oh, yeah, yeah nice. uh, and, and I understand that you know you have to learn under pressure, but that's just just didn't work for me very well. Got a down on each fam eight, then got a new on wing who was also a marine, but he was he was awesome, huge mountain of a man, excellent instructor. He'd screw up a landing, and he'd you know he'd read a letter to your parents, dear Mister and Missus So and So. We are sorry to inform you that your son, service of the country, you know, we go on with this formal letter, and then at the very end, because he screwed up the landing in the last 200 feet and turned a naval aircraft into a fireball. (laughs) (laughs) You, I get it. So, yeah. Finally made it through. Got another down in form, something or another. So I wasn't eligible for jets with two downs, but I really didn't care because that never interested me. For whatever reason, I thought helicopters would be fun. So I excelled during the basic instrument section. I enjoyed that. Of course, I I think Pete mentioned once, if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. In that area of Florida where we practice and they only give you the wet compass, you soon come to realize that most of those agricultural roads are north-south or east-west. And in the helicopter, you look through that chin bubble, you're like, Oh, look at that road. Almost to north. <laughs> I think I'll stop here. <laughs> hey, son, you nailed, you nailed that one. Really yeah. very good. But yeah. I did all right in VIs and then did great. Did really well in helicopters. Graduated. I like to say I was the top Navy graduate. That's what I put on my resume because there was a Marine who beat me. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He got lucky. That's, yeah, that's good. that's great. So, so for uh, Navy guys, hel- helicopter. Was there anything other than a, a you know, HS sixty at the time? Uh, yeah, as a choice, uh, the forty. Yeah, the forty six, the tandem rotor. Yeah, and um, they did, the Navy had fifty threes as well. I don't remember if they had fifty threes at that time. They may have. Okay. Yep, they may have. Boy, so they did. There options. weren't many. They did at one point pick up yeah. 53s, you know, basically for the heavy lift mission. But they're like they're not a lot of platforms that you can put a 53 on. But let's let's talk like let's not blast too quickly through HTs. What was the what was it like for? Because I know what it was like. But what was it like for you when you were learning how to hover? And you know how long did it take you? And, you know, what? And I also have a lot of memories back to when I was learning, you know, when we go through, because you go through like a whole nother ground school where you're learning about the helicopter and, and then you get all of the helicopter aerodynamic theories. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Hovering. I'll start with that hovering question. It was certainly difficult, but as I think one of your other helo pilots mentioned, his instructor, and it may have been Army, if if I remember right correctly, would give him one, one set of controls at the time. 
So yeah. when you're when you're watching the other students, you always knew which set the instructor had. It depended if you're so you start over the pad, nice and steady, and then let's say he gives you the pedals first. So now you're over the pad and you're maintaining altitude, but your nose is going like this. <laughs> so that's the student back and forth, back and forth. Then he then he gives you you're the just scan in the landing so you, area, right? That's your yeah, bullshit so excuse. Going, Stick with that. <laughs> with the collective and the pedals, you're going like this. But you're right over the spot because you don't have the cyclic yet. And then he gives you the cyclic and you go like this. And then he takes controls and you go like this. Back to and steady. you start it all over again. For, for our go listeners on. who aren't watching, it's uh, he, he gets slowly oh, sorry, more and more out of uh, out of phase and, until the instructor takes it and puts it back in yeah. the ice still. Yeah. What, what I always recalled was you end up putting you very quickly can end up in pilot induced oscillations because you put in an input and then you take it back out and you put out put back too much and then you end up oscillating so i had one instructor who said you know what you want to do it's like the ladies man you're holding if you remember go back to tim meadows with saturday night live you know holding on to the bottle of the glass of cavassier in your hand and you're just sort of mixing the pot and it's for me, it took me, I want to say it was about six to eight hours before I could sort of... 68 hours? <laughs> Holy shit, dude. Six How many hours eight. did you get in the HTs? <laughs> I think repeat now, I got 68 hours total from, from beginning to end. Jeez. Well, are you you know. sh- Fig, are you sure you passed your hearing test? What he, he said just then? What? Six, <laughs> no, you know, that sounds about right. It. I didn't remember it being like so challenging. I'm never going to get this and go home crying, but I didn't remember it, you know, being, Oh yeah, this is nothing. So it, it definitely was challenging, but, um, and, and yeah, you flew and you, you guys had the Bravo, the 57 Bravo and then the Charlie model, correct? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Cause the Charlie model yeah. had a little bit of stabilization built into it and it was a little easier to fly. That was the I think we only flew that for instruments. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's when you, you all your advanced and your instrument stuff was done there. Did you get any of the demos where they talked, where they demonstrated like blowback or translational lift and all of all of that stuff? Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, the, so if I can jump back to that aerodynamics question, the one that really freaked me was, you know, the lift that you put into the blade say at three o'clock is felt at 12 o'clock, depending on the airframe. Right. So when, when they, Sikorsky was first building the aircraft and they didn't realize that, move the stick forward and he goes left. Like what the heck? So they'd figure all that out. That was just wild to me, especially, you know, not being an engineer. <clears throat> yeah. That's, that's called unnatural acts of aviation and <laughs> which the helicopter is. <laughs> It's it's actually I called gyro, it it's called gyroscopic precession. And uh, what Igor Sikorsky figured out was by putting in a mixing the he made changes in the mixing unit so that the blade pitch changes cyclically changed around the rotor arc. And that's how you, it it changed. So you're how it worked. I can't I can't I can't spell any of that. Can we yeah, can we just why don't we just do this in Greek so we all know we're at least speaking the same? <laughs> well, that's why I'm here, you know. Yeah. That's why I said maybe so, I should come on the show. Yeah. No, that's That's terrifying, but I think Spicer Sugar, who flew both Harriers and helicopters, talked about that. He said he said that the 
aerodynamics portion was there you go figs holding up the sign <laughs> happiness is <laughs> vectored vector thrust, thrust baby that's the way to do it yeah, that's, on, said, that's under the that's under the resin on my bar i'm standing it i just took go. a picture of it it was all pfm, you know, PFM. The, the, yeah so all right so how about auto rotations how did you uh how did you like that Oh, hold on. Um, what yes, is sir. an auto rotation? <laughs> to, to Ice Man, describe an auto rotation, what it is, and, and then how you liked it. If you lose <laughs> your engine or engines, depending on the, the airframe, you're able to maintain the rotors spinning, which is what provides lift in general, by taking the pitch of them to a, a lower pitch. So you work on maintaining that RPM as you figure out where you might be able to land the aircraft, the helicopter, and attempt to get into the wind, of course. So as you're doing all that, once you set up and get to a particular altitude, again, it depends on the aircraft, the weight of the aircraft, you start to pull in collective, which increases pitch on the rotor blades and gives you your lift back. If executed correctly, you can land with zero ground speed and zero rate of descent. Of course, much easier said than done. In the H-60 that I flew, we did not execute those to the ground. You'd come close, relatively close, and turn the engines back on. In the Huey, we were allowed to take them to the ground at certain points during my training. But then at other times, they did not allow us because they realized that we were ruining more aircraft during training than actual engine failures because all <laughs> naval aircraft had two engines for shipboard operations. You could still, you know, fly with one engine. Right. And that's, that's where, you know, that rotor RPM is so critical to a helicopter pilot because, you know, it's as soon as you have a engine failure or something like that, the, the mantra is NR maintain. And, but the other interesting thing is as you turn, you increase rotor RPM. So you will usually end up pulling in a little bit of collective. And then as you roll out, you're going to reduce that collective. And then as you're coming into flare, you're also going to build up more rotor RPM. So you may be pulling in a little bit of collective. So there's there's a lot of little nuances in there. And it takes it takes a little bit of time to sort of, you know, figure that out. And anyways, it's... You know, uh, and- and normally the, the RPM is, you know, maintained for you once you get there at 100%. Or, so doing it manually is a change in your scan. And it's, I've found it quite easy to overspeed. Right. Uh, you could easily overspeed the rotor, the rotor head. And I, I had done that once or twice on the 65. We did power recovery autos as well. We did not do them to the ground because we would damage more aircraft than, than we actually had engine failures. So, but I thought that would be worthwhile talking about. And, and it was awesome, awesome job. Very cool. All right. So, so you get your wings when? February of 90. I okay. got my first choice to fly the SH-60 Bravo. I think they're up to the Romeo Sierra. You know, they're up to... Okay. Quite a few models past that, but it was the Bravo at the time. And the SH-60 Seahawk is the Navy's version of the Army Black Hawk. Black Hawk. Yeah. So what the Navy does is load it up with electronics gear for anti-submarine warfare and anti-ship surveillance and targeting. 
is a sauna buoy launcher, launch 25 sauna buoys, or, you know, will hold 25 sauna buoys, a mad boom magnetic anomaly detector to hunt submarines, which was brought up in the previous episode. Yep. The, there's no left door in the back of it. That's where the sensor operator slash crew chief slash SAR swimmer sits. Talk about well-trained uh, wow. Navy personnel. That's one per- all that is one amazing. person? Wow. Yes. Yes. Man. And what else is different? So the, the struts are beefier to land on a ship, and they're moved forward from the Black Hawk. The tail of the aircraft can be folded and the main rotor blades folded so that it will fit in a hangar of an aircraft. So there's quite a few modifications compared to a Black Hawk. And if I rem- remember this correctly, I was once told that the Black Hawks were having a problem with their low-level flight. All of a sudden, the stabilator is, it, is a long wing-looking thing and the tail which is meant to level the aircraft because as you go in forward flight, your nose pitches down for the helicopter. So that stabilator will bring your airframe and it's fly-by-wire. It'll slew it so that you're flying relatively level. And the Army's version was having a problem where that stabilator would slew down without being commanded to do so which meant the nose pitched to the ground and they would crash because they were flying super low level and fast. And what eventually they found out was the Navy's aircraft were not doing that because they were so well, the electronics were so well shielded for shipboard use because you don't want the radars on the ship to ruin the avionics of your aircraft. What was happening, the Army's version did not have that shielding, and when they would go over high-tension wires, the electronic signal would cause it to slew, and and they crashed a few of them. Oh, shit. Well, how about that? Yeah, hard way to learn a lesson. No. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, repeat, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but you're on mute, and we miss your voice. I knew ah, that. I was just trying to... Sticks was talking to I, I was... Yeah, I, I, I put myself on mute because I didn't want to have any background noise coming in on you. Okay. But one thing that I also would add in, so what you want to think about is that rotor disc is sitting... You're flying the rotor disc is really what you're, what you're doing. And the helicopter fuselage itself is like a pendulum that sits underneath. And as that rotor disc tips forward, the, the pendulum sort of hangs down and you do... And, and so what... The tail or the empennage of the aircraft, you have typically an inverted airfoil that actually will pull the nose down and lift the nose up, making it more comfortable for flight. So, anyways. Man. Thank you. Empennage and all these words. <laughs> <It's> empennage. <laughs> empennage being the tail yeah. section of the, of the helicopter. Yeah. So. You're uh, man. All these high highfalutin words for us aviators, us marine I'm gonna aviators. Have to, I'm going to have to go back through this, and I'm going to have to add a bunch more stuff in the glossary. glossary. Right. There you go. In the glossary. So, yeah. so there so, was that US slash glossary. So, I, man, what way, what happens when? Well, first of all, what are float bags? Yeah, and what happens when they inflate in flight? That doesn't sound good. No, it sounds bad. Well, we were. Uh, oh, I did have one story from my FRS, the fleet. fleet oh yeah, let's talk about that. The rag. So it was HSL 40 in Mayport, Florida. And from there, I went to HSL 44, Swamp Fox in Mayport. 
But during SEER training, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, I'm sure that's in your glossary. Oh, yeah. I was up in Brunswick, Maine during the spring, although it was still snowing. Yeah, and apparently I didn't pay close attention to the lecture when they said, don't sign for anything. That's all I heard. I didn't hear the part, don't sign your name except for your belongings. So when they take your, you know, initial, you get captured and you're put in your little prison cell and then they come and say, sign for clothes, sign for clothes. No. Fine. Give me clothes. Huh? Give me clothes. So I get my clothes and I'm in my skivvies in the cold, in the concrete cell, sitting on my bucket. Yeah, no clothes. So they come back. Want your clothes? Yes, yes. I want my clothes. Sign for clothes. No, I'm not signing nothing. They told me not to sign for nothing. <laughs> so I never got clothes, except when I went to see the provost marshal to get interrogated. So I was probably the only student, at least in that class, that couldn't wait to get beat on by the provost marshal because I got warm <laughs> clothes to wear. You can't go to the provost marshal in your skivvies. I'm, so now I'm I impressed. That. You had skibbies yeah. on. I, 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 I'd like you had selective hearing, and I would <laughs> refuse to sign. Only I had no skibbies, so I was in the I was in the nude for a large portion of. As a matter of fact, I was out in the yard part, and finally they went, "Okay, training oh, training timeout. Put these on." <laughs> is that because okay. you couldn't control? If things? only you'd had some. So there I was, bikini bottoms. <laughs> I, I could have rocked that shit, too, man, especially back then. Right on. Oh, man. So oh, I feel your pain. Oh, my eye. Iceman, I feel your pain, brother. I, I was right there with you. Oh, so. So, Vic, back to your question about yeah, the float the, bags. Yeah, the float bags. Um, float bags sounds so so horrible. Float bags are very large mylar bags on the side of the helicopter that if you're going to ditch... You can inflate them by flipping up the arm switch and the inflate switch, two different switches. You know, they're guarded and protected so you don't inadvertently just bop them for fun. And then these Mylar bags come out both sides and they allow the aircraft to float in theory long enough for you to get out safely. So we were finishing up an exercise. It was, you know, those blue on red exercises flying off of a frigate, and we were just drilling holes in the sky after the exercise, waiting for flight quarters. And we didn't, you know, didn't really know what to do. So, well, I'll, at least I'll put these away. And I grabbed the big eyes, which are very large, very powerful, but gyro-stabilized binoculars that we were using to help with the exercise. I said, I'll just put these away. And I grabbed them, and I put them in their case. And boom, huge noise. Just like we lost an engine. That's what my oh. and I thought we did. Oh, boy. Like, what the heck was that? We must have lost an engine. We're looking at the gauges. The gauges are fine. All the engine gauges are perfect. No, no problem. We're still flying. But the pitot-static instruments were fluctuating. So the altitude, you know, the altimeter, the BSI, the vertical rate of descent, they're fluctuating. What the heck is going on? This, we couldn't figure it out. So the pilot in command, I was the, the co-pilot for this flight, wasn't qualified yet. He goes, I know what happened. Look in the rearview mirror. Look in the rearview mirror, and the float bags are flapping against 
the static port, which is on the side of the aircraft. Oh, no. That's causing the fluctuation in the instruments. Well, there is no emergency procedure for inadvertently inflating the, inflating the float bags in flight. You don't do that. So we have no idea what the airframe is going to do at high airspeed. Are the bags going to tear off and go up into the rotor disc or the tail rotor? Low airspeed, does that cause a problem? Do they deflate at some point? You know, we don't know anything about this. This is not so good. So we called for emergency flight quarters, and the pilot in command said, go ahead, take, you know, take the landing. And at the time, I was like, he thinks I'm a better pilot than he is? This doesn't make any sense. But whatever, I'll take the landing. Right. We don't know, if, you know, I guess you wanted me to be at fault when we crashed and burned. I don't know. <laughs> Well, what, would, what he was doing, what I finally realized, you know, after you look back at it all, is that was cockpit crew coordination, and he could have a better understanding of everything situational awareness-wise, everything going on, if I was flying and he didn't have to fly. I mean, he Did knew. I, could I just land want to tell you both, good luck. We're all counting on you. <laughs> it's all yours. He knew I could land the aircraft, right? <laughs> but all those other variables that he would have to take into account as the helicopter aircraft commander, he now had the capacity to do so. So great headwork on his part. We did land without incident. And the officer in charge of our detachment was like, my aircraft has mumps. So, so did you ever find out what deployed the float bags? Yes, we did. As, as I moved the big eyes, the strap from it, I mentioned that the arm switch is guarded with a, with a red cover and then yes. it's safety wired. That safety yeah. wire was rusted and nobody realized it. So as I moved the strap, the only thing we imagined could have possibly happened is the strap caught the arm switch and because the safety wire was rusted through, it didn't have much to stop it, if anything. And it also caught the inflate switch. Boom. Boom. Yeah, boom, boom. is right. Boom. Boom. Big wow. Boom. And I'm just going to say the, the, the reason for the float bags, you said in case you had to ditch, because when helicopters land on water, and they're not supposed to, <laughs> all the weight, engine, transmission, everything, is on the top. So... They always would roll inverted and sink upside down. Right. Hence and, the yeah. helo dunker that we all had to go the through. The helo dunker, right. And they, you know, yeah. that was one thing that people get real scared about is that helo dunker. But I never, that never really bothered me. I knew even if I was blindfolded and you all had to get out of one exit, all however many are in there, five, six of you. Yeah. I knew that the best opportunity was to, I don't know exactly when I need to take that last breath. So you take it early enough that you don't all of a sudden get a mouthful of water yeah. and then let everybody get out first. Cause otherwise you're just going to get kicked in the head and you're not yeah. going to know where you are. Teeth. So just take some time, relax. I mean, if you're going to die, the SAR swimmer is going to grab you. So, you know, you're, you're not going to die, but just relax a little bit, get towards that exit. And then once you're out, you don't know if you're upside down or right side up. So your flight boots will sink, your helmet will float. So once again, take your time, 
Hang out a little bit. Let yourself get upright because you're going to get upright naturally without fighting it. And then you swim up. So I, I never really had a big problem with the helo dunker. Yeah. I think, hey, yeah, those that could not swim were far more terrified of that than, sure, than those sure. who were. But, I yeah. almost failed the helo dunker because I stayed too long. So I, I just, <laughs> just, I, it just was, hanging out, reading the, reading the I, 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 Yeah, I like I hung out. I let everybody else get out, which gave me a nice clear path without getting kicked in the head. And the, <laughs> the, the, the divers that were in the pool with us nearly, you know, they started to come in and like were grabbing me. And I'm like, I'm waving them off. I'm, I'm hitting them. I'm like, get away. I don't want to fail this, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was a good time. Oh, man. Piece of cake. So, cake. There you go. So, all right. So, you, you wind up surviving that one. And then, but uh, you, you make it out to your first cruise. And things didn't go so well. Was it a was it a jerk CO? First point? Yeah, no, first point. Yeah, oh, yeah, we never, talking about that first port visit? Are you talking about that? That he was no. a jerk, but no. He, the skipper okay. on that, an asshole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the skipper on that on that workup that we were, that I you know we had the float bag incident. He was awesome. Yeah. He understood the air crew. He understood how to use the aircraft. That it was an asset because it extended the range of sensors for the ship. Okay. We had a direct data link to the ship, so they could see our radar picture. They could see our sauna buoys. Now, that, that meant a lot of things to, you know, to him. One thing it meant, he was a junior, being a frigate, he was a junior commanding officer, so we did exercises in Roosevelt Roads, Puerto Rico, and he took the helo dead up when they, we were all pulling into port. He said, look, guys, yeah. I'm the junior skipper here, so our ship's got to come in almost last to port. There's not going to be any rental cars left, so I want you guys to fly off, get me a rental car, so we can have a good time while we're here. So, you know, he knew how to use the air debt. But on the long deployment for the first Gulf War, he felt we were a liability. Anytime we were in the air, there was an opportunity for us to end up in the water and be a stain on his record. So he, you know, sort of had that outset on that idea in his head to begin with. We pulled into Rosa, or I'm sorry, into Rota, Spain for our first port visit. And they have an H-60 contingency there that train with us, with the U.S. So the air debt, we all went out and met that squadron, met the CO. The CO wanted to take us on several of the ships to show us their ships. So we toured the ships. Of course, they are wet ships, meaning they serve alcohol in their Navy. So we, the tradition is to have a drink on every ship. So that started the afternoon. Nice. Then we got to dinner time, which in in Spain was later than we were used to. Curfew had been set, I don't know, like I'll say 11 o'clock, relatively, because we were pulling out of port the next day, relatively early curfew, but there was a curfew on the ship. The dinner was the first course and the second course and the third course and the fourth course. He didn't, he didn't order off the menu. The chef just kept bringing out food. He was well-respected in the community and it was a great time. And of course, nice. more drinks and different drinks with every course. So eventually we got to where we are not making it back to ship by 11 o'clock or wherever the curfew had been set. So our officer in charge, Lieutenant commander, he, called the ship, explained what was going on. We were with a foreign national. You know, this was this was super important to the liaison, and the skipper had nothing of it. It's like, no, you will be on this ship. 
So we show up past 11 o'clock. The officer of the deck pulls our ID cards, and we get put in hack for 30 days, no. meaning we cannot leave the ship, which is fine if you're going to some wherever port or you're transiting the med like we were going to do. Yeah. Our next port visit was Palma de Mallorca, Spain. Anyone familiar with that port knows that they have some nice... Some of the finest beaches, beaches. on the planet. And some of the finest talent on those beaches. On so <laughs> I just, I gave one of my roommates, I was in the, the what they call the J.O. jungle, the junior officer jungle. So there were six of us, three racks on one side, three racks on the other side. I gave one of my roommates who was not in hack because he was ship's company, gave him my camera <laughs> and I said, use as much film as you can, buddy. <laughs> that's sad. Yeah. Oh, the uh, skipper poor. called back to the squadron, wanted to send us home. I mean, he was pissed, but you know, that's an air debt for you. Hey, you know, oh, shit happens. You're out in the ville. Wow. That's, yeah. that's, that's actually not uncommon. That's also common with the Coast Guard. You know, not that you're, you're an air debt. You become an asset to the ship. And how you get utilized, you know, is, is, can be a very unique and challenging experience. So, and I'll just leave it at that. So, yeah. There you go. All right. When, well, I mentioned that. I mentioned that uh, lesson earlier on the float bags. One lesson I learned on this cruise, the officer in charge had, he was, he was very well respected for his knowledge of the aircraft. He drove us very hard. Even in downtime, he would drive us to be reading the natops. It, he was not fun to work for, but one of his mantras was, if there's any doubt, there's no doubt when it comes to I'm sorry about that. Careful, there's a lot of gravity safety. next to you there. <laughs> Ow! My oh, eye hit me. That's all right. Yeah. So, oh, so if, there, if there was any doubt, there is no if doubt. If there's any doubt, there's no doubt. Like that. So we, like had, that. A, we had a battery issue, and it was during the day. So when we read NATOPS on are we allowed to fly and in what conditions are we allowed to fly, you know, does it have to be... Is daytime okay? Is shipboard okay? It just wasn't really clear. It was one of those statements where, depending on where you put the commas, you could take it either way. And he said, you know, gentlemen, if there's no doubt, if there's a doubt, there's no doubt. So we didn't fly. And that has Fair stuck enough. with me for my, for my life. There's plenty of times where you're going to do something and you're wondering, yeah, should I really do this or that, you know, safety wise or otherwise. And I, I always think, you know, if there's a, if there's doubt, there's no doubt. I'm just not going to do it. It's not worth the risk. Right. right. Nice. No shit. Nice. All right. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's great advice for all of aviation. No doubt about it. But it sounds like you had a little bit of fun. Now you wrote to us about some uh, shipboard pranks with some of this as a result of being bored whilst in hack. Well, not, not necessarily, but you, know, you got to do something on the ship to enjoy yeah. yourself. Like we would, we found a bucket of phosphorescent paint, and for the Marines, that means glow in the dark. Ah, thank you. And, yeah, and we would I'd paint somebody's flip flops glow in the dark. So then, you know, at night when you go to put your flip flops on to use the to use the head, like what nice. the? Why are they glowing? Just strange things like that. Or the <laughs> officer in charge liked to take chem lights, break them open, put them in a squirt gun come into our space, which was just a very small room, 
close the door, which meant it's completely dark, and then start squirting us. <laughs> and then I got a hold of a, a weather balloon. We had a weather detachment on board, so they would send up balloons to get readings. And I didn't realize it, but weather balloons are super thin. So I put foot powder in it or some kind of powder in the balloon as much as I could fit. And then I blew it up in my boss's rack. So it filled up the whole rack. Weather balloons are large. Filled up the whole rack. And when he went to get it out, of course, it hit something. I heard him. uh, Everywhere. I heard his voice three staterooms away. Why he called my name, I don't know. (laughs) Nice, man. That's, That's awesome. So wait. How did you blow it up, though? How did you I, blow the balloon up? Well, Not I didn't. I didn't pass out from. Okay. From All right. Yeah. Gas, you, you, know, you had some kind of pump. Across the Atlantic. I don't. I don't remember how I blew it up. But All I, right. I got to it. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, plead the fifth on that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I heard somebody blew the, the balloon up. I, I don't know yeah. who actually blew it up. Oh man, that's a <laughs> scream. Holy cow. And then you find yourself pretty quickly over in the in the heart of the first Gulf War. WW Gulf War well, one where it it was one. It was towards the tail end. So some guys in our squadron, you know, they went over towards the beginning. They they came home with holes in their aircraft. They were getting shot at. They got air medals. Oof. So we ended up in the North Red Sea doing boarding ops, enforcing the UN sanctions against Iraq to make sure that no contraband was going up the Gulf of Aqaba. So we would provide air support. We would count potatoes, meaning we'd use our FLIR. We were we had a FLIR on board. The ship would contact the merchant vessel, tell them to put all of their personnel on the forecastle, this, the, the pointy end of the ship. And then we would use the FLIR. They would say they have 13. We would count, yep, they're all mustered on the forecastle. And then I believe it was a Coast Guard contingent that would board the merchant vessel and, you know, do their search, and then we'd go on. So I, on paper, it was the Gulf War, but I really don't feel like, you know, I'm a, I'm a war vet, like some folks. Well, repeat and I watched the entire first Gulf War from the ready room of VMA 223 at your yeah. point. <laughs> so at least you were somewhere near yeah. it. yeah. We, and sometimes our our Western ready room in Yuma, Arizona, while we were yeah, out dropping yeah, heavy yeah. weapons, yeah, getting true. ready to yeah. go to the Gulf War, we, we and then they had the energy. then they had the discourtesy to end the war in four days. <laughs> yeah, that was a bunch of shit. Yeah, we didn't even get a turn. <laughs> now, now seating bitter party of one. Bitter, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, party of two. <laughs> well, it was very. Fu- it was a little frustrating, but hey, I'm glad you you were there at least, and thank you for your service. By the way, indeed. I know it didn't sound. Uh, you know, you didn't think it was very glamorous at the time, but you know, it it was important, and you did it, and that's pretty damn awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting yeah, side absolutely. note. So the reason why the Coast Guard would be doing the boarding. <clears throat> is that they're not under the Department of Defense. And therefore, that if they were, if you were to use like a Navy asset, then it becomes a military operation versus the Coast Guard being a law enforcement operation. So that's why actually a lot of the Navy vessels carry what's called a, a MARDET, or, or a, I'm sorry, a LEADET, Law Enforcement Detachment, which is a small special ops group from the Coast Guard. So. Keep your hand in the game. Cool. A little smarter. Thank you. Sticks. All right.
Are you searching for a convenient way to embrace healthier eating habits without the hassle of meal prep and cooking? Factor has got you covered. With Factor's chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered straight to your door, eating well every day is now as easy as opening your fridge. Offering over 35 different meal options each week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan plus veggie, and more, Factor ensures variety and flavor in every bite. And with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, your meal planning just became an exciting culinary adventure. Ready to go revolutionize your dining experience? Start today for a week filled with feel-good gourmet meals. Speaking from personal experience, while the meals themselves are nothing short of fantastic, Factor's add-ons like their smoothies have been an absolute game-changer for me. As someone constantly on the move with little time to prepare meals, Factor's offerings are a dream come true. Their smoothies are a perfect complement to the meals. Their meals provide delicious, healthy, and balanced option that's ready in under five minutes. It's ideal for those like me who dread the kitchen yet refuse to compromise on the quality of their food. Factor stands out not just for its meals, but for its commitment to convenience and quality. Their two-minute meals offer restaurant-quality taste with zero wait time, and their extensive selection of snacks, smoothies, and breakfast options ensures you're covered for every part of your day. Economically, Factor beats takeout, hands down, offering nutritious and delectable meals at a fraction of the cost. For anyone seeking fast, premium food solutions without the fuss, Factor is the perfect fit. Their flexible plans, allowing for 6 to 18 meals per week, cater to any schedule. And the option to pause or reschedule deliveries means you're always in control. With 100% ready-to-eat, ready-to-heat meals, your days of prepping and cleaning are over. Now here's the deal. Go to factormeals.com slash so there I was 50 and Use the promo code so there I was 50 to get 50% off your first order. Yes, that's 50% off your first week of no prep, no mess, gourmet meals, and delicious add ons like the smoothies. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Elevate your meal time with Factor and enjoy the difference today. Again, that's factormeals.com slash so there I was 50 and use the promo code so there I was 50 to get 50% off your first order. Well, we had a hard time coming up with a call sign for you, but it looks like you guys had some interesting call signs within thy squadron. Talk to us about some of those. As I mentioned, there, there weren't many Hilo guys that got call signs, but one of the, that I can recall, he was the first lieutenant division in my first squadron, so the you know, sort of the maintenance of the spaces kind of job. And the skipper wanted him to. Yeah. I'm sorry. Before you get further into that. So you, you, you touched on it briefly, but explain what the first Lieutenant is on a, on a ship, please. So on a ship or in the squadron, they are, it's a position, not a rank. Right. And they sort of take care of the maintenance aspect of the facility. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for thanks for doing. It. You you, yep. you grazed over it, and I went, yeah. Let's let's go back to that. Sure. I wanted to make sure that's the best way to say it. It wasn't a rank. It, it, it was a yep. job <laughs> for a lieutenant. So okay, cool. All right, it's a gang. Yeah. It's a club. Yeah, that's right. So the, sk- the skipper <laughs> wanted them to ask him his division to landscape the front of the squadron so it looked better than the other squadrons because they're all in a row. 
So, of course, he got the call sign Shrubber, and that stuck with him. <laughs> Roger the Shrubber. Shrubber. <laughs> and then Leaky, because yeah. the pilot's last name was Fawcett, so he was Leaky. Got not a clue what his first name really is. He's just Leaky. Right. Yeah. And then my, How many guys do we know that we don't know their name, Fig? Yeah. Well, like, what's, a ha- what's Hammer? You know, Hammer yeah. Martell. What, what's his first name? Or or, or or craft yeah. cheese cheese craft. Yeah. What the hell is his first name? Yeah. And the other one that I always enjoyed was dog dog boy, because every time you'd ask him a question, he would tilt his head <laughs> like a dog does. <laughs> That's he became that, dog boy. That is yeah. that is how you get. A, yes, that is exactly how you get a call sign. What so he was a guy I was flying with around Puerto Rico, and uh, he was flying, so he was doing the radios. I said, hey, dog boy, we're getting close to, you know, the San Juan Tower airspace. Give him a call. Let him know we're here. So he calls them, and they, you know, they call back, San Juan? He says nothing. He's like, <laughs> dog boy, call the t- tell the tower that, uh, you know, get permission to transit. So he calls the tower again. They come back. San Juan? Nothing. <laughs> like, dog boy, what are you doing? You hear him? You got your radios up? Oh, yeah. He said, stand by. Just misinterpreted San Juan for standby. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Hence, uh huh. Hence, standby. Great guy. Great guy. Though. Thank you for that. I needed that right there. <laughs> Beautiful. Did you? Did you? Did you talk about Sticky Man? Sticky oh, man? Sticky Man. Because down in, we'll get to the Antarctica deployment, I'm sure. But you, we have had a Halloween party, and it's not like you can go to the costume store down there and grab something. So he decided to put sticky notes all over his body. So he became Sticky Man. (laughs) Okay. (sighs) The antics. The antics. Oh, man. All right. You know, the antics antics on the ship, when I was a midshipman and we would do training. So during college, your rank as a midshipman when you're going through the ROTC program. You know, the pranks I saw when I would do my summer training, I fortunately didn't fall for any. I don't know if I had enough. Had work to realize what was going on or what. But, you know, they'd send somebody for relative bearing grease. <laughs> and the ship's company, they, they know what's going on. So they go, oh, no, 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 no. You got to go ask Chief So-and-so. And then go find right. Chief So-and-so. Yeah, I'm uh, look, here looking for some relative bearing grease. No, no, no. That's up on the third level. You got to go talk to so-and-so. You know, you're running around the ship all day looking for relative bearing grease. Yeah, the you. air slug recovery team. So they have torpedo tubes on the ship's. To launch the torpedoes and they launch them with an air slug it just pushes the torpedo out of the tube so yeah. for maintenance they make sure that that is working properly without a torpedo but you know times are tough you got to save money so they would suit somebody up and all the protective gear and all the flotation stuff they need in case they fall overboard because it's right near the edge of the ship give them a big plastic garbage bag to put out in front of the torpedo tube to be the air slug recovery team we got to capture that air slug and they're out there and (laughs) boom the bag blows up of course and it scares the heck out of them my all-time favorite was we're in general quarters so general quarters is that condition of the ship where everything is locked down it's as if you're getting attacked or going to be attacking it's general quarters and they told this one midshipman during general quarters Hey, you got a long distance phone call on the bridge. You know, the bridge yeah. is like where everything's happening. So he is busting through all these doors that you're not supposed to open in general quarters. You're supposed to be where you're assigned. 
He's busting open these hatches, doors, and getting up and bops open on the bridge. Hey, they say I got a long distance phone call up here. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that went over like a fart in church. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure the skipper oh, was. Oh, you think you got a phone man. call, huh, there, midshipman? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Marcus Ponte mentions a couple in the comments. Key to the sea chest. Go to the bosun locker for a bosun punch. He, he was Navy. Yeah. And then Nice. Get, for bosun punch. And then what was the other one? Go get some flight line. Go get some power line. And then Hawk missiles, I remember they used to send new troopers over to supply to get some BA 1100Ns. Balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we used to we used to say occasionally somebody would get sent around for rotor wash. Yeah, and but the other other one when I was at college at Kings Point and out at sea, Prop they wash, rotor wash, yeah. they would try and send you send the cadet out on the bow to look for the mail buoy. Oh yeah, that's right, the mail buoy. Yeah, yeah, and there's Thanks. one from Bago. Bago, yeah. He had he sent them for. Uh, Vortex generator oil. <laughs> How many volts do you get from a vortex generator? You know, that's all of a good Natops question. <laughs> that's good. All of them. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah. All right. So oh. VXE6. What is that? What is that, Iceman? VXE6. VXE6. I went. So you've got, you guys have mentioned quite a bit that the military spouse is. It's a challenging job. Yes. So I got married during my first, I got engaged before I went on my deployment because I thought, that's great. She can plan the wedding. I won't screw anything up. It didn't. How'd that work out for you? Yeah. (laughs) That wasn't the the best of ideas. And then, of course, you never really know what your schedule is going to be like. So locking in on a wedding date's a challenge. And we had one set. And I was like, yeah, they told me I got to go back out to sea. You know, so that much fun. So... Somehow, I found the an unbelievable Navy wife. Nice. She allowed me to go back-to-back sea tours because oh. I really wanted to fly with VXE-6. They were the squadron that, at the time, supported the National Science Foundation's Operation Deep Freeze with oh, logistics okay. support in Antarctica. I just oh, always okay. wanted to do that. This would be my only chance. So normally in the Navy, you would do a three-year sea tour and then a two or three year shore tour but i talked her into letting me go back to back sea tours and just real quickly during during that time with vxe6 our son was born i i deployed 10 days after we were in california our families both are on the east coast and she has a newborn on her own for my deployment i missed four christmases at home Four in a row, one is one when we were engaged, three married, or maybe one girlfriend, one engaged, two when we were married, four Christmases in a row. Right. A Navy spouse is an amazing person, period. And I I, I tell her that as often as I can. No, they are that the, doesn't the answer your question. No, but uh, you you got you got me to where I was because go- I I didn't know what that was, but now I do. So yeah, let's talk about that because that's some, so that's some interesting um, stuff. They are they were they decommissioned now, but they were based in Point Magoo, California. That's in between L.A. and Santa Barbara. The Navy has a long tradition of aviation in Antarctica. In 
Reaching back to 1929, Admiral Richard Byrd flew over the South Pole, and then he chartered most, he and his contingent chartered most of the coastline in Operation High Jump in 1946. In 1956, the first, na the first aircraft touched down at the South Pole, and it was a Navy aircraft. It's in the Naval Aviation Museum at Pensacola, called the K Sera Sera. It was an R4D Skytrain. So that developed into Operation Deep Freeze, when in 1957, the Navy supported the scientists that were going down there for the inter-something inter physical science year. I'm not sure of all the science behind it. But the Navy was selected to go down. Admiral Byrd was the officer in charge of that contingent. And then every year thereafter, until it was decommissioned, the Navy would provide the air support. The squadron had Hueys, HH-1 November, HH meaning it's the search and rescue version of the Huey, the the Bell Iroquois. Nobody even knows it's called the Iroquois. Everybody calls it the Huey. We had five Hueys, four of them painted orange. One was painted green. I don't know why it was ever painted orange. Orange, so then uh, if they needed to find you, it would show up real nice on the white. Right. At least they didn't, I was going to say, at least they didn't paint them white. <laughs> yeah. We didn't need to hide, so they didn't need to be gray. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the squadron also had, and I don't remember how many, but they had C-130 Hercules aircraft with skis. So they could land with wheels or skis. The helicopter mission has gone to the to civilian contract. I don't know what platform they're flying. And the C-130 mission, those aircraft have gone to the Air National Guard and it's connected to New York. So I believe they are still providing air support. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the science season, the Air Force also provides C-17s, C-141s to get the main contingent of scientists and support staff down there. So the U.S. has three bases in Antarctica, Palmer Station, South Pole Station, and the largest is McMurdo Station. We were based at McMurdo Station. The C-130s yeah. would fly from Point Magoo, California, to Christchurch, New Zealand, and they would transport the Hueys in, you know, for us. The rest of the squadron and the Hilo pilots and crew, we would fly down commercial to Auckland and then to Christchurch, New Zealand. In Christchurch, which is the main jumping off point for McMurdo Station, you get all of your gear, all your cold weather gear. The dogs would sniff all your bags for drugs. And then you would wait for the weather to be good enough to go down to Antarctica in a C-130. And that was about a seven-hour flight jammed in the back of a C-130. And I say the weather to be good enough because it's a long enough journey over the ocean that it, there is a point of no return. Right. So they have to know that the weather is good enough in McMurdo to land because they can't go back to Christchurch. It's all or nothing. Right. And the weather in Antarctica, just like the weather in Alaska that you had a, a helo pilot explain, can change in a minute. So it's a it's a pretty tough mission. So the uh, awesome. so the weather guessers are, are really just that then is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's yeah. the the winds are so bad that they're in the operations center. There's a row of broken anemometers 
Those are those little weather spinny things yep. to tell yep. you how fast the weather's going. <laughs> a row of anemometers with when they broke and what the what the speed of uh, the wind no. was when they broke. They have no idea what the speed of the wind was after it broke. Beyond that, yeah. 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 If blades yeah. flew off from centrifugal force. There you go. So this Looks is like very, they try to do off a helicopter. <laughs> there's day. a very finite amount of time you guys are operating down there, right? Just, be, just because of the weather. They, we operated from October to January, so the okay. austral summer. Right. When we okay. were there <clears throat> for my... For most of the, most deployments, well, I'm sorry, all except two deployments, we were there when the sun was up 24 hours a day, which is odd coming out of midnight mass for Christmas and the sun is up or coming right. back from a party at 2 a.m. and the sun is up right? or pulling a prank that you think you can pull in darkness when you're drunk because you don't remember that the light doesn't go off and all of a sudden you're like, oh, crap how are we going to do this but we'll get there this ain't gonna work now i say about two deployments on my second deployment a small group of us went earlier and the sun was not up full time and we went i don't know it's five or six weeks maybe not that long but we went early enough because there were some science groups that had a grant to do certain research that could only be done at that time it had only been, it was called WINDET, Winter Detachment. It had only been done one other time in the squadron's history. So there wasn't a whole lot of corporate knowledge on what we were going to run into. Okay. And one of the things we did run into, our typical landing zone, we would have set spots that they would put a circle of rocks in because we wanted, wanted to attempt the least disruption of the landscape as we as we could in Antarctica. We wanted to keep it as pristine as possible and keeping with the Antarctic Treaty. <clears throat> Sometimes we couldn't you know, land there because the scientists needed to be elsewhere. But regardless of where we were landing, we would throw a smoke and we would recover that smoke when we landed. But that would allow us to see where the winds were coming from, circle around to see the smoke, and then you know, affect our landing. The one, the, one of the first times we were doing that during wind dead, the crew chief, as we started our turn, was like, sir, we got an engine, we got an engine fire, the engine's smoking. And we're looking at the gauges, sort of like with the 860 and the float bags. Now the engines are fine. We don't know what's going on, but the engines look great, but well, let's get it on the deck. So we got it on the deck and what was happening, it was minus 40 degrees. And for those that are interested at why I can remember that is because that's where Celsius and Fahrenheit cross. So if you ask me, was it 40 degrees Fahrenheit? It doesn't matter. It was either or. Oh, so it was minus 40 degrees, and the engines were contrailing. 40 degrees cold. <laughs> contrailing on deck. So it was not smoking. It was contrailing. Wow. Um, wow. So what that meant is if you missed your first pass because you didn't, you didn't set it up right or whatever the case may be, and you attempted to go around to land in that same landing zone, you voided yourself out. You're going to fly through your contrail, and you, you can't do that. So you had one shot at it. So that was a lesson that we learned down there. See, that's a show title there, man. Contrailing on deck. Yeah. <laughs> Holy. So I got a couple of other questions. So like how, so obviously flying down in Antarctica, very cold. How did that affect your aircraft? The aircraft flew great because the air is dense. And those rotor blades love to beat it into submission. 
so it had more air. The performance was great. We only had room for one, I want to say one aircraft in the hangar, very small hangar, maybe two. So we would keep them outside and we just pull the batteries. I think that was also mentioned in the pilot that flew in the Arctic. So we'd pull the batteries to keep them warm. They flew fine. We really didn't run into any issues. If I remember correctly, the one operating limitation was there was a certain engine, certain oil, transmission maybe, that would congeal lower than 40 degrees. So we were right at the operation operating limit of the Huey. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I think that would, act, if I recall correctly, the main gearbox transmission oil was always more susceptible to problems in the cold. But uh, also, but I did quick look, and uh, the that mission's now being supported by the Bell 412 at the present time. So, Thank you. Did you have any special classes or instruction on polar navigation? Not on polar navigation because there was the magnetic deviation was so great. We did not use our compass. We had a GPS. It was a very, very primitive GPS, a little green box on the dash that gave latitude and longitude. And then basically how to get there. You plug in where you want to go. And it tells you what direction and how far, but it's extremely wow. primitive. And that's all we had. So our, from McMurdo Station is built on Ross Island. Ross Island is a volcanic island in McMurdo Sound. We would operate not only around the island, but mainly over on the continent itself. So we had to cross the Ross Ice Sheet, and we would not fly over water. So depending on when in the season it was, we had to skirt around and take the long way to get to the continent. And then we would support operations on the continent. Uh, there were some camps over there, or we would bring scientists from McMurdo to the continent to do the research they needed to do. Maybe drop them off for an hour and come pick them up, maybe for a day, two days. You know, it all depended on what their needs were. And in the meantime, we would get, so at the beginning of the day, you'd have maybe four aircraft out, three to four and you'd get a sheet of paper that was very cryptic and had your mission on it. And you'd be responsible for this many passengers, this much payload, and go to point A to point B. And your next mission is maybe point C to point D. And you just, if you do that in order, you can get it all done. If you get ahead of the game, you try to look at somebody else and you're keeping track on the radios of what everyone else's mission and where they are and how they're doing. And the best, the most fun we had was trying to what we would call SCUA, and I'll explain that term, SCUA somebody else's mission. Because of course, if you say, hey, you know, X, we were X-ray Delta, X-ray Delta 11, uh, this is X-ray Delta 15. You know, we can pick up those guys at Lake Horror because we're right, we're right here. We see that uh, you got that coming up. Like, no, 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 we can do it. No, no, we're right here. We got it for you. You know, you sort of fight over who's going to get the mission done because it's a pride thing. So SCUA is an Antarctic bird that is basically an overgrown, overaggressive pigeon. They will eat. <laughs> they will eat. Well, if you have a bag lunch, so at the beginning of the day, you'd only get your mission, but you get a bag lunch because more than likely you're not coming back to McMurdo. Or if you do get back to McMurdo, you know, it's not going to be lunchtime. So you get a bag lunch in your mission. If that bag lunch is more than two feet away from you, a school is going to grab it. They'll eat <laughs> penguin chicks. 
They're very wow. aggressive. And of course, they, may, they have no fear of humans because there are so few humans and the Antarctic Treaty does not allow you to harm wildlife. So we could not go up to penguins, for instance, and try to hug one or take one home to mama. Damn. We would get we would get near them. And then if you just stay still and they come to you, well, I mean, that's allowed. We're not harassing them. They're coming to harass us. They get within a few feet and get some awesome shots of them and all. They would never, yeah. you know, come up enough to really be curious because they're smart enough to to see that's that thing doesn't belong here. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, so we tried to school emissions. There was a refueling station called Marble Point over on the island. The manager there, awesome guy, cut in touch for years. His natural given name is from Moscow, Idaho, is Diamond Western. So wow, after his that's time in name. Antarctica, yeah, after his time in Antarctica, he was a contractor cleaning up the Marshall Islands. You know, he just McMurdo Station is like an old Western mining town, dusty. Full of characters. I mean, those that want to go down to Antarctica and spend a year or six months or whatever it is, they're just a little different. Yeah. Uh, they had all the infrastructure you'd want. They had a bowling alley, a, a small gym, great fire department, because if your place burns down, that's all you got. So uh, fire was great. very, you know, on the yeah. tip of a barbershop, you know, a little e-dunk store where you could buy trinkets or bag of chips, whatever, cafeteria or barracks. You know, normally you want an outside room so you get a view, but in Antarctica, you want an inside room so that you don't have light coming in your window 24 hours a day, and it's warmer yeah. inside than on an outside room with a sure. window. Wow. Junior yeah. guys get the outside room. Yeah. yeah. So then the C-130s. The... Go ahead, Seth. No, you, you were just going to say you just used another term, which is gee-dunk. Yeah, one oh. more we got to throw on there. So that's like the ship store, but the classic yeah. Navy term. So, yeah. yeah. So the C-130 awesome. mission, they would bring, bring things from Christchurch, New Zealand to McMurdo. They would fly from McMurdo to South Pole Station, you know, uh, mail, people, food. And then they would also bring scientists out to the continent and landing on the continent itself, you know, further away than the Huey could do. was quite, uh, quite interesting because they would they would land or they would do a run to make sure the snow could handle them without putting full, without landing. And they would have to do that before they made a full landing because they didn't want to hit a crevasse. Crevasse, or some people call it crevice, but a crevasse is a large opening, a large V in the ice. And they can be a couple hundred feet deep. So we're trained how to walk and how to deal with, you know, that type of situation because if you fall in a crevasse it's not the fall that's going to kill you it's that pointy pointy part at the bottom and then you're stuck down there they're not getting you out yeah so the first thing you do uh, anyone down there regardless of who you are if you're going out into the field because some people are at mcmurdo the full time you know the barber he or she may never leave mcmurdo station but if you're going out into the field you have to go through happy camper school where they teach you how to survive how to make a snow hut how to traverse over the glaciers to avoid the crevasses using an ice axe, things like that. And that was, you know, the first week I was there since I hadn't been there before it was happy camper school. The Hueys naturally make a nice loud whopping noise. You throw that on a slight grade where, where happy camper school is at, you have no limit on the altitude you can fly. 
nice thick air. So I'm in happy camper school and one of those orange Hueys flies by just, you got to plug your ears with a whop, 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 and oh, does yeah. that angle of bank. And I'm just, oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be great. There is no, nice. the C-130 is built an ice runway to, or the staff that, you know, not the yeah. C-130 crew. Yeah. An ice runway is built for the beginning of the season because you can land wheeled aircraft on the ice runway. Once that starts to melt, they move the field to a snow runway and only the Herks with skis. There are also twin otters that have skis. They can land on the snow runway. Okay. So that's the only controlled airspace. There's a tower for that airfield. And we weren't anywhere near there. We didn't go near there. We just got our mission, did what we did. We had to check in with ops on the radio every, I don't remember if it was 15 minutes or half hour, but fairly often for safety. And then it was just free game. Here's your keys. Here's your mission. Go. Get it done. Pretty much. Nice. Navy standard there is 15 minutes. 15-minute ops checks for helicopters. So 30 minutes for fixed-wing aircraft. So, Well, yeah. But plus, you know, I mean, I guess that you said there are four of them down there, but. You know, if something happens, you're kind of on your own. Hence the happy camper school, right? I mean. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you do have a survival bag. Yeah. And if the crash doesn't kill you, it's, it's the survival that if, you know, they still got to find you. Right. Yeah. yeah well, I was going to say, so it's, it, you talked about, uh, you know, fly, last week, governor talked about being out on a day flying around in a ping pong ball. And you have the same term there. And I don't think he described it real well. If you could describe that. What it's like to fly in a ping pong ball. And uh, I'm assuming it's like that a lot down here. (laughs) We don't. We avoid it at all costs. I did send you one picture where you can see that the, in that picture happens to be the frozen uh, McMurdo sound. But if you're on the continent and it's all snow, it's the same thing. All you have is white for as far as you can see on the ground. So you have no reference. There are no trees. There are no ships. There's just white. And then when a cloud layer comes in, it just slowly works its way down. Or if there's snow involved in it, it slowly gets worse. And if you let that white from the bottom and the white from the top come together, you're in a ping pong ball. You have no idea which way is up, which way is down, left, right. So you avoid it at all costs. There was only one time, you often ask your guests the scariest experience. I had two. And they were both in Antarctica. One was the story I started with, where we lost tail rotor effectiveness. And the other, weather was coming in slowly. We were working our way toward the continent. So we didn't, it was over the ice shelf, pure white on the bottom. And then the white from the top started coming in. It started to snow. We could make out the continent. Yeah, there's the shot of it for those that are viewing. We could make out the continent like you can in that picture. But that slowly started to disappear. Yeah. We were close Left side of that picture, that, it's already gone, really. Yeah. If, if yeah. You can kind of we see terrain the, in the distance there, right? Yeah, Just a yeah. little bit. Oh, shit. We're close enough to the continent that we could pick out land, but we continually had to slow down. We were trying to get to the refueling station where we knew we could shut down and we could hunker down for a while. We didn't really want because you don't know how long it's going to last. That's one of the problems. Yeah. You don't fly on instruments. You do not go in the clouds because you're going to get icing. You know, oh, and right, icing yeah. and helicopter blades don't mix. And these aren't clouds where you can just play with them. You will get icing. <laughs> we continue to slow down to the point where 
you know, you're at 15 knots, you're at 10 knots, five knots, two knots. Okay, boys, we're done. So now the, the snow's blowing. You're slow enough and low enough, literally feet off the ground, that you're whipping up the snow. You, you're just in a snow globe. You have so you're no making it worse than, yeah, okay. <laughs> so your crew chief is hanging out the back door, looking at the ground and telling you what you're doing to land you. You can, you basically have to, you could close your eyes because if you get vertigo, that's not good. You have to have a hundred percent trust in the crew chief. Steady left, steady left, you're drifting left, drifting left slow, drifting left more. Okay, come steady, a little bit right, a little bit, you're good. You're forward, you're okay, drifting that's... forward, drifting forward, come on F. Okay, you're steady, go ahead, come on down, one foot, one foot, you're one foot, you're drifting left, you're drifting left again. Come back, steady, you're steady, come on down, eight inches, eight to six inches, land. That's terrifying. Um, so then we did, we had to do that, and we stayed there. Uh, it actually cleared up within within an hour. It wasn't, sorry guys. All right, yeah. I'm switch those So down. you're having to fly like one eye did without the benefit of, 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 of a purple heart at the end of the day. Jeez. <laughs> oh, just trust in what he says. Oh my God, that's terrifying. That is terrifying. That is that is the dance that you're doing when you're when you're flying a helicopter and you've got your you know flight mech in the back and you're putting your swimmer down. Yeah. Uh, you know it's you know easy, easy forward right you know right or you're gonna go right ten easy forward right you know uh, coming up over the target hold you know lift and left you know and it's just this constant back and forth and when you get good at it it's amazing it's a lot of fun but the you know, the other thing is, is being on NVGs and down on near the water, especially on a calm night, you're in that milk bowl effect. It's that same exact thing. And you're, you know, sometimes you're sitting over the boat and you're just trying to keep yourself out of the water. It's uh, absolutely, I think back to it now and I'm going, what the hell was I thinking while I was doing that? But yeah, I can yeah, it's be like, just terrifying to as you're describing about. that to me, I'm back there. All of a sudden I'm back, back over the boat, over the water at night and. Yeah. So. Oh, that's nuts. Yeah. So, All right. Oh, somehow you got muted there. Uh, let me see if I can undo it. I can't unmute you. Uh, Ice There it goes. You're it. Got it. Sorry about that. He's My. Uh, He's back. Yeah. Pods fell out. No worries. So just like I mentioned on the H60, that that's that guy in the back, SAR swimmer, sensor operator, crew chief. You know all the above. The folks, the crew chief in Antarctica, they were well-trained. They would build up our skids so we could land anywhere. So all we needed was four points, meaning where the cross tubes reach the skids. Those four points, if we had something hard to land on and relatively level, we would land. So in Antarctica, oftentimes they were building up, grabbing rocks and building up your four points. You know, you might have two points, you might have three points. So you're in a hover. The crew chief is out with a cord on his helmet, so he still has communications with you. You know, easy up, easy up. Okay, a little bit, a little bit left, and you know, putting a rock wherever. All right, come down easy. See how it holds. No, a little bit more, and you know, you end up landing at pretty much anywhere you can. I remember in training back at Point Magoo, we would fly up in the mountains, you know, L.A., and there was a fixed wing crash that a couple of helicopters, including an army helicopter, they went by and they're like, we can't affect, it was a you know light civil aircraft. 
we can't affect this. There's no way we can land to save these guys. You're going to have to come in by some other means. And we had an aircraft, the XC-6 had a helo up in the area. They went by and the crew chief's like, oh, no, sir, we can build that up right over here. And they, they saved those guys because of the expertise wow. that was needed in Antarctica. Well, that's unique. That's awesome. You know, the science down in Antarctica was fascinating to me. One great example is the Antarctic fish can survive at minus two degrees Celsius because they have glycopeptides in their blood that is basically antifreeze. So you're like, okay, so what? So they get to survive. Well, they were trying to figure out if they could isolate that antifreeze, that glycopeptide, and use that in preserving organs for organ transplant. So instead of oh, keeping it cold, in the unit, you, could have a, you could have a longer lifespan for that organ. Um, I don't know, you know whatever became of that, but it's just some fascinating science going on down there. That's fascinating. Yeah, some one of the, the neat missions. Some, ahead, the, some of the some of the climate research that's uh, been coming out of there has just been fascinating as well. So that so. yeah sort of led me to one of the other missions. They would send up these long, you know, the weather balloons for climate studies and all. And they could only control them a certain amount. I think they would let air out if they wanted it to come down into a different air mass or drop weight if they wanted it to raise into an air mass, something like that. But they only had limited control as to you know where it ended up. And then they would cut the balloon, parachute the payload down, and the payload would send out a signal. So we'd, tend, we'd take out the scientists that were involved in this, and we affectionately called the scientists beakers. So we'd take out the beakers, and they would have like divining rods or something that they were picking up this signal, you know, they're their little earplugs in and they're out the aircraft. Okay. Uh, go left. They'll go right. And you're like, you know, finally you look back, like you don't have a clue where this thing is, do you? No, 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 sir. We're good. We're good. All right, fine. <laughs> and you think finding a big old parachute in the white snow is easy, but it was, you know, needle in a haystack, but eventually we'd get it, you know, we'd find it. You'd land. They would stuff that parachute in the back, get their payload. So on one of those missions, I was like, uh, hey, guys, what are you doing with that parachute? Because my, my wife was a school, school teacher, grade school teacher. I thought that would be awesome for the, you know, the school. Yeah. So like, well, yeah, we don't use it again because the payload is so expensive. We don't trust a parachute for a second run. I'm like, great. Can I have it? Sure, you bet. So now I got this parachute, big as I'll get out. Not a clue what I'm going to do with it or how I'm going to get it back. So one night... <laughs> Somebody had the idea after a few drinks that maybe we should cover the National Science Foundation headquarters building known as the chalet because it looked like a ski chalet. That was the building that you don't go to because that's where all the muckety mucks worked. The National Science Foundation that gave all the money. Somebody had the idea of let's go do an op and cover the chalet with a parachute. I don't know who had that idea or who covered that, but it might have happened. And it might have been at 2 a.m. when the sun was up. And all of a sudden, whoever did that was like, oh, crap, the sun didn't go down tonight. What happened? (laughs) But they never got caught. And they just started spreading the rumor that it was the the New Zealand helicopter pilots because those guys were crazy. They must have come over from Scott Base, which is a mile away. Those darn Kiwis must have done that. And it took the fire truck, the station fire truck, to bring its ladder and get that off of there. Those crazy Holy bastards. Cow. That's awesome. Yeah, 
Kiwi pilots. <laughs> so we'd have some fun. Okay, that another... that's a lawsuit. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that whoever did that, whoever coordinated that, my guess would be he or she was up all night long thinking, I wonder if that propane heater stack coming out of the top of the building would catch the parachute on fire, which would catch the building on fire, right. which would catch McMurdo Station on fire, That'd be bad which luck. Might, end a, might end a career. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. These are the what things could... that we ponder. <laughs> hmm. yeah. When you're bored in Antarctica. Yeah. What could so possibly go wrong? <laughs> so there's a... One more mission that I'd like to talk about was the there was a long duration balloon that the payload it was multinational who was involved in this project and the payload was worth four million dollars. Well, they dropped it or it had to drop because, like I said, they have minimal control over where it goes. They dropped it where no aircraft could get to it, no snowmobile, no snowcat, whatever they're using could get to it. And our skipper said, "Well, we can send Hueys to get it." It was twice our normal operating range. I don't have the exact distance to it, but being twice our normal normal operating range, we had to refuel halfway there. And this was way up on the polar plateau, so it's getting really cold. Refuel by by hand cranking gas out of fifty five gallon drums. The oh, payload nice. is so large that we're shuttling it back and forth in pieces, back and forth, humping that payload until we can get it to a place where a twin otter aircraft can come and pick it up. So that was, that was tough. That was a serious mission, but yeah. typical Navy, you know, typical Navy Marine Corps, there is no mission we can't do. Well done, sir. Well done. Yeah. Shit. There you go. Well, is this the one well, where you lost tail rotor authority? No, that was up. We were bringing beakers to, there's a lower hut and an upper hut, Mount Erebus. Mount okay. Erebus is the act, is one of the two active volcanoes okay. uh, in Antarctica. One of and that's being, the one you teased when we opened the show. Just right, yeah. right. Okay. So we, were, we brought some beakers up to, or we're picking them up, I'm sorry, from the upper hut. So we were above 10,000 feet. We needed to be on oxygen. Okay, one more question. Did if you said it, I missed it because I was doing show production stuff. Did you told me the other day what beakers are? Did you say today what beakers are? Yeah. We we covered real quickly. Okay, I, all right. My apologies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was our the scientists affectionate term for scientists. Yeah. Okay. My apologies. Well, I missed it. I was doing show production or something when you covered it today. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> What's the beakers? So I was the helicopter aircraft uh, polar. We had the polar designation too. Aside from being a helicopter aircraft commander or hack, we had to get a polar qualification to be able to operate so you're a fact. Antarctica. P H A C. P hack. Yep. P hack. So my my co-pilot was by rank. He was senior to me. He had had more flying experience, but not in Antarctica. But I allowed him to crunch the numbers to figure out you know what our safe operating limits were. And I had complete trust in him. He was a fine pilot. When we loaded up, up on the upper hut, you know, the scientists brought all their gear, whatever they needed, if they were collecting rocks or, you know, I don't recall what it was. And as we start to pull collective, it became pretty obvious to me that we were over the weight that we needed to be to still have tail rotor authority the tail rotor counteracting that torque of the main rotor 
so that you can fly straight. But fortunately, and so the options are to try to fly out of that if you can, but you're sort of going in a circle. Or if you stay over the spot, you spiral out of control. Uh, neither of those were options, obviously. I don't want to spiral out of control because you're going left, and that's where Mount Erebus was. Going okay. right is down to the ocean and would have been okay if I you know, could have got that way, but that was impossible. But I was, a lot of your pilots have said when the emergencies kick in, their training just happens automatically. And I was able to recognize this and put it back on the ground with some yaw, with some yaw. it wasn't perfect, but we got it on the ground safely. Scared, scared me, period. <laughs> that, there are no other yeah. words to it, just scared Did me. you have spare flight You're, suits with you or did you have to go yeah. home dirty? <laughs> <laughs> so we were able to lighten our load. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing worth, worth taking, whether it's science or whatever, there's nothing worth taking. Leave them beakers behind. So we left some stuff <laughs> yeah. behind and, and we got back down safely. And then I recrunched the numbers to see, like, why did we do that? We were not supposed to do that. Oftentimes we would account, the beakers would tell us how much weight they're bringing. Then we would add to it because they like to underestimate, yeah. you know, it's just sort of human nature. Got to get sure. the mission done. So we would often bump it up a little bit. So I crunched the numbers to double check and yeah, we were out of limits and the uh, co-pilot just didn't happen to check that. So that, mm. you know, brings me to the uh, trust, but verify as I know I've heard yeah. repeat say before. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so, wow. so this actually brings up where, cause obviously on the, on the helicopter side of things would, uh, I think are what I want some of our listeners to understand. So there are two curves and, or that we look at. So we have power available and power required. And power required is the, is the amount of power that you need to actually do the operation that you're doing. And then there's pow the power available. You may actually, when you're initially taking off, you're not going to, you're going to have more power requirement than what you may have available. And so that you're going to end up either bleeding rotor turns off of the main rotor or not having the power authority that you need out of the tail rotor. So it's, you know, there's this, there's a very finite limit. And, and that's one of the things I think it's kind of easily overlooked when it comes to, you know, dealing with helicopters and, and that. So it's amazing that you were able to put that down. Yeah. That's awesome. lucky than good. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Every single yeah. time. Don't about to doubt it. So, and then, I'm assuming I'm asking a stupid aerodynamics question then I guess that if there's more power required than power available, if you're right on the edge, you can get into translational lift move forward speed. Does that, does that solve some of your issue or can you not do it? Cause you don't have the tail rotor authority to do it. Or is it? You depend? would not be, yeah, you would not be able to do it. If you're right on that edge yeah. and once you're past the translational lift, you know, then, then you could be okay. Right. Okay. But it's that it's that hover. But you can't it, get there from here. <laughs> that that yeah. translational yeah. lift usually equates to about usually a ten to fifteen percent power margin. Now that is working in your favor. Oh. And what translational lift is is that you've got clean air. You know, you're not recirculating your air, and you've got clean air coming in through the rotor disc, and so you're into a more efficient flight regime. And actually, once. Once you're north of or outside, beyond translational lift or above translational lift, the helicopter flies a lot more like a fixed-wing airplane than it does a helicopter. 
which is why I think, you know, and this is what I think is often misunderstood. You know, when we're in forward flight, you know, it's I'm, I'm flying a plane. You know, that's pretty much what it's like. It's yeah. below translational lift that things get interesting. So, well, let me ask, how, how often did you fly when you were down there in Antarctica? Did you fly a couple times a week, every day? What? The, question. The, the squadron flew six days a week. And okay. pretty much, I don't know what time we started in the morning, but, you know, reasonable hour, 8 o'clock in the morning, straight through till you try to get try to get back by dinner time. Okay. Sometimes you don't get back by dinner time, and the ops ops always keeps a close track on that, and you get a second bag lunch for the day. But that you know it's fairly rare. So each pilot, we had five aircraft, eleven or twelve pilots. You, know, you get two or three days of flying in a week at, at least, and then one of the at some point you're scheduled to be in ops to overlook and to make the schedule for the next day. They always wanted a helo pilot in there helping out the civilian that was coordinating everything. Okay. Wow. And and how many hours did you wind up with? Uh... Uh, in the Huey, it was, and I looked it up because I know you asked that periodically. Yeah. I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday. Huey was 697 hours. And the okay. H-60, I actually had more. I had eight, 828 in the H-60. But I only did, you know, two years with VXE-6 because the second deployment, that was the decommissioning deployment the last deployment for us you flew uh, 828 hours in two years in the h60 three no three years there was a full three-year tour okay right Right. so a total of 1777 278 shipboard landings wow well did you guys do a lot of sling loading or hoists as well we didn't do a lot of it but we did quite a bit of it because on that sling load, we can take more payload. The problem with sling loading from McMurdo to the continent, which is where we would need to get most of the, you know, most of the gear, is that it took so long and you were limited on airspeed because it would uh, start to oscillate out of control a little bit. So you had to slow down and then get all the way over to the continent, which on a normal flight might take, depending on where the ice is, because we have to avoid the open water. If it's a straight shot, it might take 15 15, 20 minutes. If the ice is melted, it's towards the end of the season and we've got to skirt around, you know, take half hour, 35 minutes. So if you put a sling load on there, now you're really burning gas and going slow. So it, we rarely, we did it, but it was rare. Okay. And you avoid, and you uh, managed to adhere to the regulation of making sure you sling load your water buffalo? Yeah. <laughs> we did have pigs. We uh, did sling load pigs. <laughs> awesome. So, so more hold, livestock. Hold on. Oh, no. <laughs> they, yeah. Did you kill any livestock? Pigs, Were they frozen? Were you there any there? livestock harmed in your operations? <laughs> there, there are some some field stations that require propane to operate, and there were huge propane tanks. And we would put fins. Well, they were painted like pigs. The propane tanks were painted like pigs. <laughs> uh, okay. Right. And we would uh, we would put on them that were you know cut out of plywood so that when we did sling a pig it would uh fly steady nice yeah, i've slung pigs okay that's awesome but they, okay. they all had pieces <laughs> painted on them okay in front of, them yeah, are, you know, we front of those propane tanks around more livestock stories yeah Excellent. i thought i thought well i thought maybe we might have another show title there too slinging pigs <laughs> well, they, <laughs> they were slinging pigs <laughs> the thing about flying down there pigs. is awesome. We flew, 
with cold weather gear, of course, but not, you know, not a dry suit or anything like that. We would just layer up as much as possible. And we did not fly with flight boots. We flew with mucklucks. So mucklucks, these, these were thick cotton liner and then a relatively thin cotton outer shell. And so big, big fat old muckluck to keep our feet warm. They worked real well. You know, they weren't Nomex, but so be it. You got you to gotta live to you know, try to avoid catching fire anyway. Yeah. If you're on awesome. fire, you're, you're at least warm. And then our gloves, our gloves had cutouts for the, they were three finger gloves. So three fingers would fit in them, then cutouts for your index finger and your thumb so that you could control the cyclic. And some people would wear flight, you know, regular flight gloves. The Huey did not have any insulation. Some of those aircraft were older than our youngest pilot in the squadron. They were Vietnam Air. They still had ashtrays in them. Really old aircraft, not particularly warm, but you didn't really want to get overly warm in there yeah. because with every mission, you're helping the crew. The pilots would help the crew chief unload what they needed to unload. If a science camp had a Scott tent named after Captain Robert Falcon Scott, one of the early English explorers, he had a particular type of tent that they still use today, a large triangle. If we had a Scott tent for these beakers, we would strap them to the skids, and that takes some time and know-how. So we would do it. We would not allow the beakers to do that. So between the pilot, one of the pilots and the crew chief, you're constantly getting out, getting sweaty, humping stuff because you want to get to the next mission and screw somebody else's mission. So you're working hard. You don't want to get all hot and then cold, hot and cold. So, you you know, it was, it was fun. Did you guys do engine running offloads or did you shut down when you were, when you were changing out the cooling? It, it would depend. We would normally engine running offloads. You know, you train the, train any passengers very well to avoid the tail rotor. The crew chief would make sure they avoided the tail rotor when they exited or, or entered the rotor arc. So normally it would be running if we were just offloading. If we were shutting down, if we're leaving, if some scientists needed to be there for half an hour to go collect rocks, they were geologists, and we did not have another mission that we could possibly fit in that time frame, then we would shut down and just hang out. Okay. And that when we would do that, the quietness was deafening. I you would it just was sit like there being in hear, a sound vacuum, right? You could hear your heartbeat just sitting there. <laughs> it was yeah. awesome. Yeah, just awesome. awesome. Yeah, because we had Aircalf Chris talking about getting out and leaving everything running and walking away. From yeah, we did not do that. <laughs> we did not do that. Yeah. One time we, we dropped off some we dropped off some beakers in there. Their survival bag, which is a fairly big kit. I don't know, maybe yeah. five by three, something like that, by a couple of feet uh, thick. Okay. So we dropped that all off on a glacier that they needed to go do some work on. And as we took off, I noticed that the survival bag started to slip down the glacier. And if you know if that got away from them, that you know they're done. We can't leave them like that. We they if we're setting them up overnight, we yeah. make sure they test their radio before we leave them. So that they have communications back to Mac Town, which is what McMurdo Station is called. Okay. Anyway, with that survival bag started slipping, so I we moved back and used the rotor disc and that rotor wash to push it back up towards them. Probably froze the heck out of them with that rotor wash, but I'm wow. sure they'd rather have that survival bag than and be yeah. cold for a few minutes while we maneuvered it up there. Than be cold for the yeah. rest of their life. 
the rest of their short life. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. Well, we've been going for a little bit. I know you've got a couple of stories left. What I'd like to do is uh, save that for a a quick after we get out of here. I'd like to land this airplane and and then get that one or two other little notes out of you about, let's see where to go there. I have notes about, oh, licking the blubber and the Lake Vonda Swim Club. So, but yeah, if we could do that as, as, as we start to wrap things up here, first thing I'd like to do is to thank, uh, we have an all-star audience here with us today, Fig. I don't know yeah, if you and do. Sticks noticed this. We've oh, got I did. Don- I yeah, did. Donuts listening. Brad Silcott from BDS Aviation Photography's here. Bago's here, obviously. Marcus Ponte. Chucker's been in and out, mostly out. I guess he's playing bingo at a birthday party. Our <laughs> new Times 3 tanker aircraft commander as of yesterday. Thank you, Sal. Sal's with us. And the venerable One-Eye. Welcome, sir. We are honored that, you, that you're listening. That's and, Ben Cassio. Uh, Thank you, yeah, Marine. Thanks for joining us today. Semper Fi, Marine. Glad you're with us. So, yeah. Sticks, if you could take us to the next portion of the out, we'd appreciate that. Okay. All right. Oh, so- Sticks, I'm sorry. One other thing. I, this is my fault. My humble apologies. Iceman, you're involved now with something called Comeback Yoga, and I'd like you to chat briefly about that please so everybody hears about what that is thanks i I will repeat you know as most navy pilots and definitely helicopter pilots go i had some severe back issues and i started doing yoga maybe 20 years ago it's really helped me i've come to when i moved to denver the denver area i started doing yoga at one of the vfw posts and came to find out that it was sponsored by a nonprofit called comeback yoga local Denver base, but they offer classes in Colorado live and then online YouTube and pre-recorded as well through their website, comebackyoga.org. So if you're in the Denver area, I highly recommend you look it up. It's a great way to get with other vets. And as we age, we need a little help with that balance, strength, flexibility, and it helps us deregulate the brain down into a place where we can, you know, get a little calm. It doesn't matter if it's a text message, somebody at work, somebody in traffic. Our brains are always up in that fight or flight mode. And that this yoga practice, it's, it is done from a science-based, trauma-informed manner. So I just nice. wanted to give a, give a plug for Comeback Yoga. Please That's um, outstanding. support us. Yeah. yeah. Thanks Come a lot. Come back yoga.com. That's, okay. that's awesome. Dot org. Yeah. Yeah. My apologies. Come And I'll put Come that in the uh, yoga. show. Org. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I'll even second that a little bit. So for some of our listeners who know or don't know, but I actually work professionally now as a nurse practitioner. And the one thing that I will say is that well pilots are safe pilots. So you, you do have to try and take care of yourself. So, so anyways, I think the next thing that we need to do is we need to say thank you to all of our service members. We so appreciate the sacrifices that you make and those sacrifices that are made by your families. It would be impossible for us to have the military service that we do without the support of the family around them. And that includes their children, the spouses. We we owe you a sincere debt and we thank you for your service. Indeed. And thank you also to BeckBeatMedia.com. They support us with uh, advertising. And, of course, the head of that is one gent by the name of Dave Hamilton, who's given us the support and technical know-how. Dave can be found at uh, the Mac Geek Gab. 
the gig geb for musicians and the business brain for entrepreneurs. So, so thank you so much for that. And our bandwidth is su- supplied by cashfly.com. We've thrown a lot of acronyms around today, and most of them can be found on our glossary at so there I was.us slash glossary. And if you can't find one that we've used, please reach out to specifically the guy that's the smartest guy in the room always sticks at so there I was.us and he'll get that sucker added to the glossary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Glad to do it, but I'm not that smart. Yeah. Hey, oh, and by the way, in in case you haven't heard, we have a merch store. What? Yeah, I know. And so if you're watching, you can repeat's really rocking the merch, man. He's got uh he's got a cool is that a hoodie yeah. or a vest or what? Got the, the hoodie. I got the hoodie on, yeah. got the hat. I'm, yeah. I'm rocking the bikini bottoms right now, but nobody wants to see that. But mine are fur-lined, and they are awesome. We do have a bikini on the merch store, but glasses, cocktail glasses, a coffee mugs, uh, towels, uh, blankets. I don't know what. Probably if, if we don't have it, it's not made. I'm not sure. What do you think, right? repeat? Yeah, oh, I, I, exactly. <laughs> and write to us and ask for it. We'll see if we can get it on there. Have not been able to get a wool, winter wool cap, but had a couple other things asked for, and we've gotten them up there. So we do want to thank all our Patreon pilots and our direct donor support. If you go to so there I was us slash donate, you get to our page where you can donate directly. But uh, Patreon is actually does a nice job of helping me keep everybody in one one place. So everybody that donates over there, we're humbly grateful for you working hard, earning that money, and then. Sillily, sillily. Well, <laughs> Is that a word? I, I don't even know what that <laughs> means. With, with, with total lack of judgment, you throw it in our direction, and we're humbled <laughs> and honored by that. Yes. So, so thank you to all our Patreon pilots, and especially this week, I'd like to acknowledge. Sal Marinello, who is now a triple tanker aircraft commander. God bless you, sir. Appreciate you stepping up and doing that. Rick Mosley is now a double tanker aircraft commander. So thank you, sir. We've got a new section lead this week. uh, Jeremy Strack and Jim McHale is also a new Patreon pilot. So thank you, gentlemen. We can't uh, tell you how much we appreciate your spending your hard-earned money on keeping this show going. It's very humbling. Very humbling. Thank you so much. All right. And if you wanted to help us out, let's say you can't necessarily don't have the bandwidth to buy some merch or something like that, then please do us a favor and rate the show. Share the show. Tell your friends about the show. Uh, It is what is the lifeblood that's sort of continuing to push the show forward. Uh, Also, we need to throw a big thank you out to Brad Silcott of BDSAviationPhotography.com. Uh, you can find some absolutely awesome photos there, even some photos for the Coast Guard. So uh, thank you, Dave. Absolutely. And I'm going to jump in real quick here, even though this goes to you, Fig. Fig uh, Ray Glanville, one of our donors, I just noticed is online. He says this is his first time catching a live show. So we're glad you're in the audience with us as well. Uh, thank you very much for your for your support, sir. Appreciate yeah, it. welcome, Ray. Welcome aboard. Thanks for watching. Yeah. Hey, uh, you hear it in the background. Those are the uh, DOS Air oh, Force F-16 pilots that make the Air Force sound good, the DOS Gringos. Awesome music. They were a great interview. They let us use their music for our, 
for our show. You can you can find their music on Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, where, wherever you get your music. And they have four albums out, and there's not one bad song in any of them. Not one. Any advice for our listeners till next week, Fig? Well, we got to say it because of our of our guests. Don't let go of the collective. Do Don't not do let go yeah. of the collective. Absolutely not. There I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing on that day. Now an F-16 is cramped enough, but it's even worse with all that stuff supposed to save your life. But we knew there was no way. Because when you're going down the North Atlantic, man, it's over. Hey, What? He said it's over, man. Yeah. And in honor of one of the last stories. That boy is a P.I.G. pig. <laughs> nice. Why not? And nice. we are out. All right. Sadly, I've got a hard out, so I can't talk much longer. Let's, let's whoa, get those two whoa, last whoa. stories You got a in. what? I've got <laughs> a hard out of here. I got to do it. Whoa. I, sorry. So, I thought I heard something. Yeah, you yeah, put your ears back in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't be sad about that. <laughs> so, but uh, let's I'm get those last stories just in, talking and about it right you now. and I are going to have to come back and do the intro another day okay. for everybody. But I think, yeah, I'd like to go, Iceman, if we can, and talk quickly about Licking the Blubber and then the uh, the Lake Vanda Swim Club. We'll put those <laughs> up on Patreon for everybody, and then Fig and I will circle back at an okay. intro for this one.